and also that shame like hides in the darkness, right? And so we recover, we heal in the light. And so that was one of the reasons when I started speaking really openly about my experience was I could continue to hide that and be embarrassed by the fact that I was an addict or an alcoholic or someone with substance use disorder, whatever the, the terminology that, you know, people choose. But I didn't want that anymore. And I, it was okay, you know, to be me. All right, today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is Hillary Phelps. Hillary is a speaker, an addiction recovery advocate, writer, and holistic wellness coach. Her mission and purpose is to help other women find their voice and heal from anything that is holding them back from finding their purpose. Hillary lives in Arlington, Virginia with her son, Alexander. And I was really honored to have a chance to sit down with Hillary and really get into her whole journey learning about her childhood and upbringing as we always do, but really seeing how her whole life really led her to the point where she can now be of service in helping other women in particular. So really inspiring, just a phenomenal person who's really done a lot of deep, deep hard work and is now getting to enjoy the benefits of that work primarily by being of service to other people, which is truly what I think this life is all about. So I hope you enjoy Hillary as much as I did. Thank you. All right. Well, welcome back to the Gravity Podcast. We're here with Hillary Phelps. Thank you for taking time to join me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to get to know you and really hear your full journey. Yeah, tell me just from the beginning. I want to hear <laughs> about young Hillary life, your family, parents, just what it was like for you as a kid. Sure. I mean, so I'm the oldest of three. I have a younger sister and a younger brother. My brother's my sister's two years younger. My brother's seven, so it's the oldest. You know, the oldest of three. My parents grew up in a very rural community in Western Maryland, small, four hundred people. Um, they were high school sweethearts. They went to college together. My dad was a football player. My mom was a cheerleader. So it was this beautiful, idealistic, romantic relationship. And mm -hmm. she followed him to college. My mom tells this story when she was in school. She went to the guidance counselor, and they said, "Sweetie." you don't need to go to college, just get married and just, you know, mm -hmm. just, you don't have to do that. And my mom's like, what? No, <laughs> like my mom had aspirations and she mm -hmm. was ambitious. And so they left this small town and they moved to Havita Grace, Maryland, which is another small town, but a little bit bigger than the one they grew up in. And my mom was a teacher and my dad was a police officer and they built a beautiful home in the middle of five acres. And so when we were growing up, we lived pretty nice life and you know, we would spend a lot of time in nature and it was great. And well, something someone said the other day, we actually lived in a trailer on the property while it was being built. Mm -hmm. So we had this, um, <laughs> it was an experience and my sister and I lived there and we rode bikes and we played in the stream and we caught crayfish and it was, it was a beautiful childhood and we started swimming there's like, you know, a club pool, like everyone joins a summer swim team or a summer mm -hmm. pool. And there was one that we went to and I started swimming in the Summer Swim League and I wanted to win, basically. Mm. So I got these third place trophies and I told my mom I wanted to get the big ones, which could have been a precursor to my addiction of wanting mm -hmm. <laughs> to be the best of and just going all in. And I mean, probably not, but mm -hmm. yeah. So I yeah. started swimming. My sister started swimming shortly after. And the summer I started swimming was the summer my brother was born. So we were kind of from that point forward 
spent a lot of time at the pool. Mm-hmm. So you were you were seven when you started to get into this around that age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm curious about the, I know you said maybe not on the addiction side, but we'll get to that. But, you know, I am curious, what do you remember about that kind of idea, that feeling of being in the pool or wanting to win? Tell me more about that. Yeah. So I loved, I loved the water. You know, I joke and I say my Pisces sun, Cancer moon, Scorpio rising. So I'm all water signs in the mm-hmm. Zodiac. So mm-hmm. I think I was just drawn to that comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the feeling. I like, it was kind of an escape, but also a really safe space mm-hmm. to be in the pool. And I was around my friends. It was the summer, but I remember I, I can still see it. I can still see myself holding this trophy at seven and it was, you know, a smaller one. And I was like, but I want that one. No, mm-hmm. I want the big one. It was at a trophy meet at the end of the year. And my mom's like, well, Mm-hmm. You know, you gotta, you gotta put in the work. You have mm-hmm. to swim, you know, winter year round if you want that. And I was like, okay, you know. So from a young age, I was willing to do whatever necessary. As also a straight A student, mm-hmm. got my first B in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I was, you know, that that firstborn. I was a type A. I was a perfectionist. I loved succeeding, mm-hmm. and I just, I always wanted to. Yeah, I had the drive to be the best. Mm. And your and your sister swam too. My sister swam too. My mom, you know, and I was seven, my sister started swimming in the summer league shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. And my brother was a baby. So, you know, he hadn't, he wasn't swimming yet. Mm-hmm. But then from, you know, seven to shortly after that, I started swimming in the winter league and mm-hmm. year round for a small club and did the distance. I was a distance swimmer. Mm-hmm. So I started training with older kids and um, my parents were driving, you know, cause we lived so, we were so remote that my parents were driving at this point, it's 30 minutes Mm-hmm. each way for practice. And once we started swimming at North Baltimore, which was in Baltimore, it was an hour each way. And at that point, my parents were like, all right, you're both and they're like, you're both doing this. If mm-hmm. we're putting her in swimming and she's loving it and she's mm-hmm. you know thriving, we're going to put you both in here mm-hmm. and you're both going to be doing this too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask the kind of swimming piece. It just feels like it's something that just kind of came into your life. It wasn't something that you're parents did or I mean even if it's you know that far away it wasn't like you were surrounded by people that were doing it is that you know kind of how it happened yeah I mean that's accurate yeah I just liked it I liked swimming I liked the competition and so yeah my parents weren't swimmers I mean I don't Mm -hmm. I can't say that I've seen either of them like swim laps ever and so my dad played yeah football my mom was a cheerleader and that was there my dad was a really good athlete he um, was recruited or he tried out for the commanders Mm mm-hmm what they're called now. Like yes. the Washington football team commanders. Like, yeah, yeah. They had sent some tapes for him and he tried out there when I, you know, before I was born. And uh-huh. so he was a great athlete. Yeah. So I think a lot of his athletic ability yeah. came came to us. But I just liked it. It was just kind of one of those things I liked to do. Nobody, you know, put us in it or nobody forced us to do it. And I think, you know, the three of us had some natural ability. My sister yeah. was third in the world at 14 and mm. you know, yeah. The rest. Right. And so I, I am kind of curious about your parents' role in that you know, mm-hmm. knowing that it wasn't really their thing, but um, there is this sort of athletic, maybe competitive side that is a part of their past. Were they, uh, how were they as parents? Were they pushing you? Was were they, were they supportive and loving? And, you know, just tell me a little bit more about what that exchange was like. Yeah. I mean, they were supportive and loving. They were never pushing. I think they encouraged us to do 
kind of what we wanted. The only time I'm, I'll get to this in a second, but I mean, my dad, you know, I was, when I was 11, we still lived in the woods, in the woods, and mm-hmm. it was an hour commute to practice. And I was in the elite level and I would swim from five to seven every morning, which meant we had to leave by three forty-five. Mm-hmm. So my dad would get up every morning and he would warm the car and he'd have breakfast in there. And, um, Mm-hmm. I told you my dad yeah, yeah. passed. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and so yeah. my dad would drive me every morning and he would sit in the parking lot while I swam in the car. And then he would drive me to, um, my mom was a teacher and, and we, they got me a boundary exception because they started to see the potential of being a really great athlete. And so they were, they never pushed it, but they were very supportive of it. Mm-hmm. And so when I was invited to do these double practices, my parents went through a process to get me into another school that was outside the boundary of the public school I went to. And um, it ended up being my mom's school. And so mm-hmm. uh, my dad would then drive me 30 minutes back there and my mom would bring that, you know, drop my sister and brother off at school. And they had this system that seemed to really work well, mm-hmm. but they were never... The only time my mom was pushy, I grew up in Baltimore, or Mm. not pushy, but (laughs) as a sophomore in high school, and um, I went to my mom, and I was like, and I was being recruited by colleges for swimming, for a scholarship, and I went to my mom, and I'm like, I think I'm going to play lacrosse, Mm. because that's what everybody did, and I wanted to be the cool kid, you know, I wanted to play with the cool kids, and so she said, okay, Mm -hmm. so if you play lacrosse, are you going to play lacrosse in college? I'm Mm. like, Probably. This kind of, you know, it's just like, okay, well, you've been swimming your entire life up to this point and you have these people approaching you to come and swim in college. What if you don't get accepted to play lacrosse? Or what if you've never ever in your life picked up a lacrosse stick? You're 15. You've never. And I'm like, I got this. You know, she's like, okay, that's fine. You can quit swimming and you can play lacrosse. But here's the deal. If you play lacrosse and don't get recruited everywhere, you are responsible for every application and for every cent of college. Mm. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's your option. Mm -hmm. Or you can swim for five more years, have a full scholarship and Mm -hmm. go anywhere you wanted to go and end up going to the University of Richmond, which is a great academic school, great, um, great experience. But I was like, uh you know, because at that time at 15, I'd been drinking, my grades were kind of slipping a little Mm -hmm. bit. So I was not going to get it, get in to a lot of places on academic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. scholarship or achievement. And so I was like, all right, you're right. Mm -hmm. Because I knew how expensive college was. And I knew, you know, I I had the foresight to. Yeah, I'm kind of curious just to spend a little more time with your parents, Mm -hmm. because it sounds pretty unique. I mean, to have parents that are so loving and so supportive Mm -hmm. as a parent. And you do these things, right? Because you love your kids. But, you know, just thinking and you mentioned your your dad passed and I see the emotion and I understand it. Just thinking about, you know, him making breakfast and having in the car and waking up that early and whatever he was doing before you even woke up so that you could have that. And I could understand how your mom might feel like, hey, you know, really? Like, you're going to change gears on me now? I'm like, right, right? you know, like, and, and so... I'm just wondering, like, if you had any sense at that time of just how, like, awesome it, that was that they were, like, that supportive. No, I took it for yeah. granted. I didn't yeah. understand. And I don't know that I fully understood until I became a parent. Yeah, I think that's what it takes, usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because even, I remember it, my mom and I had a little bit of a tumultuous when I started drinking. We um, butted heads a lot. Mm-hmm. And I remember at 25, you know, going back to her and being like, Mm-hmm. I kind of see what you did. Thank you. But mm-hmm. I didn't fully still understand it until 
you know, I had a child and I realized that love and connection you have for your child and you do anything for them. And sometimes it's, it looks different than what I needed. You know, my mom was really, um, I don't know. Um, it's funny. My dad was kind of the loving, like as he got older and my mom was really like focused on goals and structure. Like she was really in mm-hmm. structured and I think there were times when I was like, but I just needed a little bit more love. You know, she's mm-hmm. like, I was doing, you know, now we had these conversations and I'm a parent. She's like, well, I was doing the best I got. I thought that's what you needed. I thought you needed the pushing. I thought you needed the, you know, the drive. And, and someone said to me once, like, no, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. You're just going to mess your child up in a different way than your parents messed you up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and now that I have a child, I can see like mm-hmm. they were doing the best they could. Mm-hmm. And I was grateful, but I definitely took it for granted. All of the the travel that they would do. My dad worked two jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, to pay for our swimming so my mom could, you know, work her job and then be at home to cook dinner and, and food for us. And so they really gave a lot for our goals. And- mm-hmm. A worldview of mine that I've come to, which I didn't always have, mm-hmm. but it's been very healing to see my parents and myself as doing the best that I could, mm-hmm. right? Even when it might be easy in my case, you know, with my father in particular to see how he could have done better. Mm-hmm. Right. And most people will tell me like, man, I don't know, you know, he could have done better, but I really don't think so. And I don't see it that way at all. And getting to that spot, like getting to the, this is generational. And yeah. if you could have done better than you would have, right. And like really landing there mm-hmm. in total acceptance is really empowering and healing. And I think it does take your own journey mm-hmm. to really get that, you know, um, especially, you know, then becoming a parent. Mm-hmm. And in my case, like seeing that I was taking on, you know, some of that behavior, when the kids were little and thank God, like catching that and changing that, you know, hopefully generationally changing it. Who knows? I'm sure, (laughs) you know, my kids will find fault in it someday, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think we do the best we can with what we have, you know, and I said that about my parents, because when I was 15, I asked them like, I need to see a therapist. Can I please go to therapy? Yeah. My parents were like, you don't do that. And that was their generation, right? Right. So it wasn't. And so now I think it's our generations, my generation as a parent, like when my child said, I'll be like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. No question about it. Let's do it. You know, where it's just different. And the perfect example of that is I recently was talking to my mom and and my mom said to me, "Um, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you in early sobriety because nobody knew what to do. You know, I was the first person in my family to identify as substance, having substance use disorder. It's the first person to go to treatment. I was the first person to go to 12 steps. It's the first person to acknowledge and look at my drinking. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, only last year she said to me, I didn't know what to do. So I didn't do anything like mm-hmm. I, you know, and, but sure. she acknowledged it yeah. and she said, I'm, I'm sorry, I wasn't there for you more. And I could have taken that opportunity and been like, yeah, you should have been. And I was like, you know what? You didn't know. Yeah. And I forgive, like, I'm not angry about, I'm not upset about that because it gave me the strength Mm -hmm. to do it, you know, and it's okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that also let her off the hook. You know, I wasn't going to shame her or tell her she did a bad job or come at her and say all the things that she did wrong, or you could have done this better. It's Mm -hmm. just allowing the grace or giving someone the grace to be them and say, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Cause I figured, and I love you and there's no hard feelings and we're doing the best we can. Yeah. 
Um, that's great. I want to come back to that because I think the amount of work that you've obviously done to be able to get to that spot, right? Like some people, yeah. I think even when I say that he did the best he could thing, people don't get it because that's not how they see the world. And in order to see the world that way, you've got to really do a lot of work. And it's not a right or wrong thing, but it, it, it is often where you land when you do a lot of deep, hard work. Mm -hmm. But I want to go back to the 15-year-old you that starts drinking. Mm -hmm. And tell me about that period in your life, teenage years, pre-college, you're drinking. It, do you think it's sort of like recreational fun? Everybody's doing it. Tell me about it. I think it was a little bit of both. That was around the same time I'd asked to go to a therapist. I was, I think, experiencing some depression but nobody knew how to handle it. And so I said, I, I'm feeling bad. I'm feeling sad. I didn't have the words of vernacular to really explain it or describe it. And so I also started um, cutting because the physical pain was easier to deal with than emotional pain. And so once that stopped, I mean, it wasn't enough. And I started drinking. Drinking was the one thing that gave me the release or the calmness or eliminated the feeling of, you know, not being good enough or not being seen or because all of the things I had, you know, I had straight A's, I was number one, I was a top swimmer in the country at age 11 and 12. I had all of these things on the outside that would say I was good enough, but I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel good enough, smart enough, pretty enough. Like I never felt enough for any room I was in. And so mm -hmm. as soon as I put alcohol in my body, those voices quieted and I could just escape and be numb. And so I liked that. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to fit in. I also didn't have, I think it goes back to um, like self-confidence and self-esteem. It was going through that pubescent stage mm -hmm. and I, I wasn't sure where I fit in. And we had moved, I had moved schools. I got picked on, sat by myself at lunch at all the, you know, all the things. I didn't have a lot of friends. And so I wanted to fit in and I was willing to do kind of, so it was like that confluence of things, a little, probably a little bit of depression, wanting to fit in, mm -hmm. not feeling good enough. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, drinking did it. But for me, I also, you know, believe that um, addiction is a disease. It's not a decision. And so I think once I flipped that switch, then I couldn't stop. And it just kind of escalated from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you can, and thank you for saying that, I relate to that not enoughness. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm curious in your case, and I know you've probably looked at this and, and at the time we're not aware of it, but mm -hmm. where do you think that comes from? I mean, you mentioned the depression, but the the feeling that that hole inside of you of, of not being enough, where do you think that came from for you? That's a good question. I think it came from I think lack of self-esteem, that comparing out, like, you know, I compared my insides of feeling uncomfortable to other people's outsides. And so, you know, I think you've done a lot of work too. And what we see is that the people that are angry and, and mean are usually the most insecure. But as a 14 and 15 year old girl, I saw them as the confident ones, the ones I needed to please, you know? And so I also have, you know, people pleasing. And I was like, okay, I just need everybody to like me. And I didn't yet understand that if I could just be me, it would attract the people that liked me to me versus me trying to go out and like recruit, you know, like mm -hmm. to recruit people to like me. And at a young age, I didn't understand that. So I don't know. I, you know, and I think I think it was just like lack of that self-confidence. And I think that's pretty pervasive in mm. young kids and yeah, I, I was going to say that just, you know, hearing you, I wonder just how pervasive it is. Like, I don't know. I think it's pretty 
societal. It's like everywhere. Like I think a lot of kids go through that. People live into it. Mm -hmm. It's probably part of what's wrong in the world, right? Is that you have a bunch of grown people doing this still, right? Children. It's never enough. And yeah. I mean, listen, I can I can fall into the trap still today. I mean, it's interesting how, you know, sometimes the ego finds its way back into the driver's seat and you want to do, you know, a little bit more of this and that, and whether it's work or Instagram or the next thing, it's, you know, it, it, it can happen still for me. It's my fight. And part of that is just like, I think the world that we live in, mm -hmm. especially kids are told, perform, get into college, get into a good college. You know, I mean, I see even, I think with my kids, like we don't put pressure on them at all for academics, but we don't have to because they feel it, it just in their peers. And it doesn't even, it's not even like a it's not even like a horrible thing. Like they're so upset about it. They just like naturally think that's what they're supposed to do. And the paradigm. Yeah. That's what we're told, right? That's yeah. The paradigm we're supposed to do. I read something and we were talking about the ego. It's mm. like healing comes when you tell the ego to sit in the corner and you tap the wounds in order to find out where you need to heal. Mm -hmm. You know, something. Yeah. And I love that. And I, I think that was kind of, I feel like my parents generation too, like you push your kids to be better and do better. And, but because it's a reflection on them, you know, it's a reflection on the parents if they don't. And I think that's, I don't know, love it. No, I can, that's a whole conversation, loving mm -hmm. the child for who they are and whatever their strengths are. And, you know, I said that to my son, I'm like, what, and he's sick. So it doesn't really get it. And I'm like, if you want to be whatever you want to be, I will love and support you. You know, if you want to be a starving artist and be a painter on the streets of Barcelona, because that fills your heart with joy and that gives you purpose, I will support that because you're, it's, it's your life. It's not mine. And mm -hmm. he's like, no, you're the boss of me. I'm like, I'm not the boss of you. I just put boundaries up when you're little <laughs> because I need to keep you safe. Yeah. Otherwise you are the boss of you. Yeah. Yeah. I know some, my youngest um, at times is like, no, no, tell me what to do. I'm like, it's your call. And he's like, no, you're the parent, you know, yeah. I, I want you to tell me. I'm like, okay, you know, if you, if you want me to, I'll tell you what I think, but I don't know. It's your call at the end of the day. But, but it is interesting, just that paradigm. And, and so tell me, you know, you're, you're starting to then get into the drinking. And, and the reason I asked the question initially is there's a lot of, of that that just goes on. I, certainly did a lot of that in high school around that age. And, mm -hmm. you know, I had a lot of friends that pretty much everybody was doing it. It felt just like sort of what, like what you did. Mm -hmm. You could look back now and see people that were actually in a lot of pain. Yeah. They weren't just having fun. It wasn't just a party. This was like very soothing, numbing and addictive. So tell me about, you know, kind of how that goes for you. Mm -hmm. And I think I wanted to say one more thing too, when you asked about like what it was at 15 that created that. And the only, you know, I have an answer for that based on how I feel now, yeah. you know, after doing all the work, the only thing, you know, the thing that makes me feel like I'm enough is that I found the confidence and I found like, this is who I am and it's okay. And I found my voice and I live in my truth, like mm -hmm. all of that. But I didn't have that then. Mm -hmm. And that's the only, that's on like, I don't know. That's the only thing I can think of. But, mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah. So I was, you know, 15 and I started drinking and it was at like, you know, the, the college or not the college, <laughs> the lacrosse games. And we would do all the, you know, sneaky things. We thought we were being sneaky. We'd pour vodka and watermelons and like eat it. And we're like, it's just watermelon. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we'd party in fields and, and, and I don't know that I 
liked it, but I didn't like the way I felt when I wasn't doing it, if that makes sense. And so it was kind of like, but I never liked the taste of beer. I never liked, it's such a paradox. I didn't like feeling out of control, but I liked the freedom of it, Mm -hmm, you know? And it's mm -hmm. like, it's just this, and I feel like that's how it was for all 15 years. It was like that space of purgatory. It was like a brief escape until you went over the edge of into the blackouts or Mm -hmm. into the edge of no turning back. And yeah. And it was starting to impact your swimming. Your, 100%. Yeah. And you could notice that, but the trade off to you felt like. Didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my grades were starting to slip. Um, my drinking was starting to increase. I'd gotten removed from the elite group and moved back to a, a lower group. My sister was moved to the elite group. So she was younger. I remember she beat me in mm. a race, and my mom was like, ooh. Mm. You know, and so all of these things were. I mean, it's life, right? Life happens. So some things were just happening and I use those as like an excuse to accelerate my drinking. It's mm. like, well, I'm not good at this and I'm not, you know, and someone said to me when I was getting straight A's and I was getting um, the fastest swimmer and they're like, well, if you do this better, you'll be better. If you train harder, you'll get faster. And if you study harder, you know, you'll get better grades. And you do, and, and I was like, but I'm already, I'm already the best and mm. I'm already really good. And, and in that that was like, well, that's not good enough. So I'm not, what I'm doing isn't good enough. So maybe they'll be really good at this. You know, I'm not good at being good. So maybe I'll be good at being not bad. I don't Mm want to say bad, but you know, the other way. And yeah. And so all that started, you know, started kind of deteriorating a lot. And um, my mom will tell you, she's like, I just love the phase. I thought it was like, you know, and my mom was also, my parents were also at that point in the middle of a divorce. That was tough. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also gave me the freedom to explore my addiction and my drinking a little bit more, you know, because they were living in separate homes. We, you know, sneaking out. I was doing the things that, you know, kids do and mm-hmm. we'd sneak out and smoke pot in a tent and mm-hmm. steal liquor from my friend's dad's liquor cabinet. Cause my parents didn't keep liquor in the home. And so do all of those, all of those things. And ironically, the girl that I used to do all this stuff with is also in recovery. Mm. And there's a group of like 20 kids from my high school class that are all in recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. There's probably a group of 20 kids from my class that should be. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you yeah. know, um, yeah. anyway, um, I have to ask, cause I am curious about your brother and at what point it starts to become noticeable that he's a very talented swimmer. And what I'm curious about really is if that had any impact on you as you were growing up around that. No, I mean, impact how? Um, Any impact. I mean, was it positive or or negative? In my opinion and experience, for me, there's a seven-year age difference. And so it was more, it was tougher when my sister started beating me because we're females and we were Mm -hmm. racing. And so... And so when I was a senior in college, my brother was 15. Yeah, it was the year he went to his first Olympics. And so he was 15. And so he was kind of just, he was 14 when he got rookie of the meet at nationals. He was 14 and went to nationals as the youngest swimmer. And um, I remember saying, I was like, he's going to be somewhat, you know, he's going to be amazing. We're drinking beers in my mm-hmm. college apartment. And, um, you know, all the guys in the swim team were like, yeah, he's just good. Like, he, I'm like, no, no, no. You know, you, he's like, he's your brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm like, just wait, it's coming, it's coming. So, you know, we knew then that he was an exceptional athlete, but in my last event of my career, my swimming career, it was the mile and he came down on deck and counted for me because you have a little counter, lap counter. So that was really special. Mm. 
And then that summer, we went went to Sydney to watch the Olympics for when he was 15. It didn't have as much of an impact on, I was just proud. And mm-hmm. I was just a proud sister. And so it mm-hmm. didn't have any impact on my, you know, I, we were far enough apart. Yeah. In my opinion, it had more of an impact on my sister because my sister was an Olympic hopeful. She was third in the world at 14. She went to trials in 96. She got fifth. Her time would have won the Olympics in 96. It was, you know, Mm. human currency. It was a bad meet, Mm. which is what happens in sports, you know? And so that was heartbreaking for her because in Mm. my, again, my my words, because she had given up everything. My sister never drank or smoked. She did nothing in high school. Mm. You know, the opposite of what I did. She was good. She was in bed. She Mm. took care of herself, you know, all those things. And Mm -hmm. um, so I think... I think that, you know, was more challenging on her than it was on me, that mm-hmm. success. Mm-hmm. And was, so, so that's great that you were in that difference in age. I have younger brothers that are much different age than me too. So I get that. And you're also at a point where you're like, you know, later in college and you can really just be cheering for them. But between the parent, your parents' divorce and how it's impacting your sister, and even just like by itself, he's now, you know, in the Olympics at 15 years old. Does that become a challenge at all for your family? Is this a bonding thing? Is, is it like an awesome, like, cool, we're doing this? Or is it people are being pulled in different directions? You know, tell me, you know, about the dynamic now that he's at that sort of level. In 2000? Yeah, I'm just, it I'm evolved just, and changed. Yeah, as it, well, just tell me, you know, kind of whatever <laughs> feels important to you. Yeah, I mean, you know, in 2000, it was super. It was exciting. It was it was it was the youngest swimmer since 1932 to youngest male swimmer since 1932 to make the Olympic team, and it was really exciting. Our whole family was there. My sister mm-hmm. didn't go; she couldn't make it. Mm-hmm. And that was really exciting. And then each year, it kind of escalated a little bit more because his, you know, he got better. Mm-hmm. Six medals, six gold medals. 2004, eight, and 2008. You know, mm-hmm. 28. I lost count at some point, you know, 28 overall. And so it changed. I mean, in 2004, I was still drinking. And so, and, you know, someone in the throes of their addiction, it, you know, I thought it was about me. I'm like, I'm celebrating because this is, this is a huge, and it wasn't Uh about me. And so personally, I think it, you know, I made it more about me at that point when I was still drinking than it was about supporting him, even though Mm -hmm. we were there and cheering him. And and Mm -hmm. we have these beautiful moments of being able to cheer him on and, but then in 08, that was kind of the big one, right? That was the one where it changed everything. Thank God I was sober because it could have been a great excuse to celebrate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I just celebrated one year of sobriety. And so the only challenge was that everywhere we went, people like champagne and, and wine and, you know, all of the things and saying no. It was like, oh my gosh. And it was the flip phone. So it was hard to text my sponsor. You know, my sponsor is working with a woman. and But that's really when the whole thing changed because nobody knew it had never been done before. And mm-hmm. so all of a sudden it became, it impacted a lot because he was just doing what he loved to do and was really good at things that he loved to do and became really successful at things he loved to do. Mm-hmm. But it changed the lives of everybody overnight because, you know, we couldn't go to a family dinner without somebody coming up and saying, I hate to do this, but mm-hmm, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like the famous line or, mm-hmm. you know, somebody throwing insults or opinions as mm-hmm. we walked down the street as a family or through the, you know, through the train station on what they thought about his whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that becomes really hard and you become really insulated because then you don't know, you know, mm-hmm. who do you trust or who do you? Um, yeah. And I want to talk about really your experience mm-hmm. in life and how, and to the extent that being a part of your family 
impacts your experience, I'm, I'm happy to hear about it, you know, but I, I am, I'm interested in really your journey. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to just, you know, back up a little bit, you kind of fast forwarded to sobriety mm-hmm. and I'm kind of curious, you know, what happens that leads you mm-hmm. to the point of needing help? Did you have a rock bottom? Did you, how did you decide that all of a sudden, you know, mm-hmm. you needed to, to enter into treatment or kind of start your recovery journey? Yeah. And so the, you know, the thing about addiction and recovery is that it's every person's decision on when they've had enough. Mm-hmm. And so I've had people say to me, well, your bottom's not that bad. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it's bad. And it was bad enough for me. It was enough, yeah. you know, and for a really long time, I stayed out because I was just a wine drinker, right? That was my drink of choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would drink whatever you put in front of me. I drank all the way through college. I started experiencing blackouts, but I thought it was normal for a collegiate a collegiate athlete, a collegiate student to have those, because exp- that's what college was for, you know, to ha- to get that stuff out. Mm-hmm. But when I entered into the real world and I got a job and I was, you know, doing all the adult stuff, it continued. I was blacking out. I was drinking every night, um, but I chose wine because I liked it. Mm. And because alcoholics don't drink wine, they drink out of a brown paper bag because that's what we're shown. That's what we're shown in Meg Ryan, When a Man Loves a Woman, Nicolas Cage and Leaving Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Those are the depictions of alcoholics and addicts, people that are really struggling and really suffering and losing everything and their world's imploding around them. But that wasn't the case for me. I mm-hmm. still had a job. I still had a family. I still had, you know, I hadn't been kicked out of an apartment. I was still making money. So I was a pretty high functioning addict. I wasn't drinking before work. I wasn't drinking at lunch. You know, the things that we're told that defines an addict or an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I was blacking out. So every time I put alcohol in my body, I would forget what happened the Mm. night before. Sometimes there were brownouts, meaning I would kind of come in and out of like consciousness, meaning Mm -hmm. I'd wake up. I'm like, I kind of remember that, but I don't know if that, you know, what it was. And, and it started to get really scary when I'd, I'd fall a lot every morning I'd wake up and I'd climb in the shower and I'd sit with my knees to my chest and the water would be on a crying. I'm like, gosh, my body's in pain. My kidneys hurt. I can't do this anymore. But by noon I felt, I'm like, oh. I feel okay. And you kind of forget all the pain that had, you know, happened that morning and the night before. And you're like, well, maybe this time will be different. Maybe this Mm -hmm. time when I drink, it'll be different or look different or feel different or I'll have a different experience, right? Like the definition of insanity, Mm -hmm. (laughs) doing the same thing and expecting different results. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of my, you know, groundhog's day every single day. And when I I would commute train. So in, I lived outside of Washington, D.C. And there was one, you know, a couple incidents like this that would start to happen. I'd end up in um, Anacostia. So I don't know if you're familiar with D.C., but it's an area um, that I don't go to, especially at night alone. Mm. And um, and I'd ended up at that, you know, I took the wrong way on the metro back to my car. So I was going to drive, you know, but... Mm. I got a text the next day. It's like, hey, I put you back on the train. And I'm like, I don't even know who this is. Mm. And I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. And so you know, they say God protects babies and drunks. And so probably good, maybe some of the Mm -hmm. things that I don't remember, but that started to get really scary. And at the time I had a, you know, a boyfriend and he, we broke up and I moved to DC and I was on my own. And I'm like, this is it. This is it. Now I can drink however I want it, you know, however Mm -hmm. I want to, I have no parameters. I only have to show up at work in the morning. It's, and it was on and it Mm -hmm. was 10 days just on my own in the studio apartment in Washington, D.C. And I would go to the liquor store and I'd drink every night or I'd go out and I was getting kicked out of bars. I was also smoking at the time. And it was just, it was painful, like mm-hmm. emotionally, spiritually, physically. And I got a call from my ex-boyfriend and he was like, this is really bad. Like I was worried about you before, mm-hmm. but 
I'm really worried about you. And if you don't get help somehow, I'm going to call your family and I'm going to tell them everything and tell them how bad you are and how, and I had tried to go into 12 step meetings. I was seeing a therapist at the time, you know, a couple year before that. So I'd been trying for a couple of years to get into the program into not drinking. So I knew I was a problem drinker, but I didn't really, or I knew my life was unmanageable, but I didn't think I had a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't, hadn't connected the dots yet. And so 12-step meetings really scared me at first. And that was the only thing I knew. Nobody had ever, no, I didn't know anybody, you know, other than the woman I drank with in high school. And she was the one I called. I did, I did, it's a funny story. I um, went on MySpace, remember like the original. Mm -hmm. And I went on MySpace and she had, I don't drink and I don't smoke. Those were two of the things that you could mm -hmm. add. And I emailed her and I was like, I used to drink and smoke with you all the time. What do you mean? Like, mm -hmm. this isn't, she's like, I got sober five years ago, you know, and she said, your elevator's going down and you can get off at any time. Mm -hmm. And something about that line stuck. Yeah. I'm like, oh, so I have a choice, This mm -hmm. is, a, you know, a choice. And so I still kept kind of going in and out. Then I Googled, or I looked online for treatment centers. I'm like, mm -hmm. well, I can't go to inpatient because that's, people have real problems when they go to inpatient. That's mm -hmm. like, and I still didn't want anybody to know. I wanted to do it in secret. You know, I, I drank in secret, a lot of the things I did in secret. And so mm -hmm. I didn't want people to know that I was going to treatment. So I found a after so outpatient. So I'd go after work mm -hmm. I'd go to work during the day. And then I go to outpatient at night and, mm -hmm. um, but I still wasn't sure. I wasn't sure it was going to stick. I'm like, well, this doesn't work. Then I'll try something else. Mm -hmm. But I kind of went in there thinking like, I just want to get this. I just don't want any of my parents to know. Mm -hmm. I just don't want my parents to know how bad it was. And they knew I was drinking a lot. They knew I was, you know, maybe a problem drinker. And mm -hmm. my dad had come to my apartment one time to for my birthday. And I was just passed out in bed. I couldn't get out. Like mm -hmm. everything hurt. And he's like, this isn't good, Hillary. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. just this one time. <laughs> and so... My bottom was the shame. You yeah. know, I didn't want people to find out. I still wanted to keep my drinking secret. And mm -hmm. I knew it was starting to crack. Mm -hmm. I think every time I share too, like a little bit more comes out because the first time I was super like sure. not insulated because I was like, I don't know what, what am I comfortable with? Like, what am I? And now I'm kind of like, you know what? Like, it's okay to share really more vulnerably. And, yeah. and that's what I, about going back to that question about, yeah, because I don't think I found my voice until I was 15 years sober. And it mm -hmm. took a lot of work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's a lot of work. Yeah. Finding your voice. I think it's interesting. I think that's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. But I want to come back to a few things you said. Okay. There was a few things that really struck me that I want to come back to. One of which is this idea that addiction and therefore like sobriety, recovery is supposed to be a certain way. You know, you talked about the brown bag and you talked about like, your rock bottom's not that bad. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's that's kind of part of this shame piece that I also was really struck by. You know mm -hmm. that it can be it can be pretty bad without it like appearing to be that bad, right? It's really more of like a emotional internal feeling, and it is often tied to shame. And in your case. You, you talked about like having loving parents and supportive yeah. parents, but somewhere along the way, and it might just be kids on the playground or in the pool or a story or this or that, or just society, the, the pressures, the stories you take on that have you feeling like you're supposed to be a certain way mm -hmm. and you're not that way, whatever it is, you might be 90% that way and it's still not enough 
or it might not be who you are, but there's a lot of shame around all of it. And I think that is the thing. I mean, just knowing what I know, you know, that's also the thing that keeps you in addiction, right? Mm -hmm. It's a cycle. Mm -hmm. It's really, I think, again, kind of a pervasive problem that there's this societal story about how things are supposed to be. And when you're not falling into that to any degree, it's tough. It's tough. And so I just, you know, I kind of hear that in your journey and curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. So one of the best books I've ever read, it's called Change Your Paradigm, Change Your Life by Bob Proctor. Mm -hmm. And he talks about that, how a lot of the paradigm that we're taught is from someone else, that we don't even believe those things, right? And so we're programmed, whether it's society, church, parents, education, whatever that is, right? And so part of me finding me was figuring out what I believed and what my paradigm was, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. But we talk about that shame spiral, that shame cycle. And every single day when I woke up, I had to look, I looked at what I was doing because I knew what I was doing was uncomfortable and I knew it was creating pain by drinking. But I had to decide, right? Do I want to look at it and make a change or do I want to continue to bury the shame with booze? And for a really long time, I chose the path of bearing the shame because it felt really uncomfortable. And it was, it's really hard to look at the things that that I was doing to myself. And also that shame like hides in the darkness, right? And so we recover, we heal in the light. And so that was one of the reasons when I started speaking really openly about my experience was I could continue to hide that and be embarrassed by the fact that I was an addict or an alcoholic or someone with substance use disorder, whatever the, the terminology that, you know, people choose but I didn't want that anymore. And I, mm. it was okay, you know, to be me. And also what I, you know, you referenced the brown paper bag and kind of, it's what we're told, it's what we're seeing, right? Like this is how an addict looked, this is how an alcoholic looks. And when I got sober, there was nobody talking, there were no women speaking mm -hmm. about recovery and sobriety that I could find. I am sure there were, but you know, mm -hmm. I remember going to the bookstore <laughs> because I'm a lover of knowledge and information. I went to Books A Million and DuPont Circle that I was living in DC and I walked in and I was like, okay, self-help, where do I go? Mm -hmm. You know, I said, go mm -hmm. in the self-help section and there's like, you know, all the books. I was like four on recovery. It's like what to expect your first year. Drinking a Love Story by Carolyn Knapp, which is an incredible biography of um, a woman's experience with addiction and drinking. And even in, in the, you know, the big book is what's used in 12 Steps. There are very few stories that are written by women because mm -hmm. it was founded by men. And, mm -hmm. and so... I was like, wow, I guess, you know, this is all I have. And so I went home and I was trying to read it all and try to like understand it. And the biggest thing for me in understanding my addiction was just letting go. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to understand it. I just need to, I needed to know and understand that it was an issue and that mm -hmm. it was a problem. And um, recovery and addiction and sobriety, they can all look different, you know, depending on which, because I know there's a lot of sober curious, which I think is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I have a, um, I have a friend who's, she's 25 and she called me and, and she was like, once I start drinking, it's not that I can't stop. It's just that I make bad decisions. It kind of impairs mm -hmm. my judgment, but I don't drink all the time. But when I, she's like, do you think I'm an alcoholic? I'm like, mm -hmm. only you can answer that. She's like, but I don't want to drink because I make bad decisions. And I was like, okay, mm -hmm. then you don't have to. She's mm -hmm. like, but I don't identify as an alcoholic. I'm like, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. Like it's a choice. But I think that we're told that drinking is the way to escape, you know, the mommy wine culture and mm -hmm. the way that it's marketed and the way that mm -hmm. we're told, like at the end of the day, you go home and you pour a glass of wine and it's going to take everything away. It's going to mm -hmm. make you feel better. And I think that's a huge disservice that people are getting. Um, mm -hmm. But now I think there are more women who are sharing their stories, you know, and even when I got, you know, I work on, I'm on a, um, a board, an addiction recovery board, and, and I work with um, 
you know, Ashley addiction treatment out of, of Maryland. And I, so I work with in the addiction space and it's still a lot of men. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of yeah. men. And, you know, and my mom said, and when I, you know, there's sometimes when you walk into a room when it's all men and mm-hmm. I have to make the decision if I want to, you know, they say, can I curse? Yes. <laughs> you, you can curse. You say yeah. save your ass or save your face. Yeah, right. And yeah. so every time I choose to save out, save my ass cause I didn't want to drink. And yeah. so, um, that's the only curse word I use, I'll promise. <laughs> oh, it's okay. I have a, a potty mouth. But tell me, uh, I understand that your drug of choice was wine. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, and I'm wondering, you know, specifically around like women mm-hmm. and what you've seen there, you know, what they say is that in general, addiction can be a whack-a-mole thing, right? Where you can go from one addiction to another, mm-hmm. right? And you can get on top of one, but it pops up another way. And and I've been kind of recently um, super intrigued with kind of the socially acceptable addictions. Now, I mean, drinking like wine drinking. can be one of those, sure. right? Drinking can be one, but Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. Scrolling, work, busyness, exercise, I mean, eating, right? There's a lot of things in there where it can show up. Right. And I'm just curious, in your case, you know, have you had to move through that yourself? And do you see women who are struggling maybe in ways that are sort of easier to hide? And I, I, I mean, I think everybody's doing it, but I'm curious just because you have a direct experience in working with women. Mm-hmm. And I have to like, right, be totally vulnerable and truthful is that I still use those things to escape, right? Mm-hmm. Those socially acceptable things. And so what I found is that I have to check myself and we were talking about this the other day. It's like, I'm not being very emotionally sober right now. And what I mean by that is I'm doing something to take myself out of the feeling that I'm having right now, mm-hmm. right? So when I feel angry or when I feel disappointed or sad or all those things, like nobody wants to sit in that. Mm-hmm. Nobody really likes to feel sad or angry. Or, and so I sit and I'm like, what can I do to escape this? I'm going to go on Instagram or I'm going to eat ice cream or I'm mm-hmm. going to go like whatever. And I think the hardest thing to do is just sit with that and know mm-hmm. that like it's going to pass, right? There's this, it, the emotions and feelings stay with us for 60 to 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. But the story we tell ourselves that we loop in our mind is what keeps us stuck there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if we can sit in that discomfort for that amount of time and then release it and be like, you know what, I'm angry because this, you know, this person did that. And then it's like, you know what, I'm just going to let it go. Mm -hmm. I do it. I bring myself back to it. And I'm like, you know what? No, I'm going to do this and I'm going to tell them this and I'm going to, and it loops Mm -hmm. and it stays. And so I think that's the biggest struggle is finding, is being able to stay present in the present moment and being willing to accept whatever that moment offers us. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And so not wanting to change the way we feel because we always want to feel good. Right. That's why I drank. And that's why maybe we overexercise or maybe we, you know, eat ice cream or because we want to feel good. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, I can't feel those really high highs and great joys without also knowing what it feels like to be uncomfortable and to be sad and because I wouldn't appreciate them so much, mm-hmm. you know. And there's this beautiful, I might botch it, but it's like, you know, the people that you see with the lights, the people that you see happy and shining and rainbows know that they had to go into the darkness to get that light. Mm-hmm. Because that's you've got to experience some dark times in order to know like I don't want to go back there and I'm gonna I'm willing to do whatever it takes in a healthy way to make sure those demons stay where they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's why I like to follow this format with the podcast is because mm-hmm. I am kind of curious to hear that darkness, which 
oftentimes, it's not with everybody, but oftentimes it's super informative to the rest of your life, you know, especially if you can, you know, kind of become aware of it and see how it can serve you and and what you want to be and what you don't want to be. And so I want to learn more about what happens next as you start to kind of, you know, learn all of this, see all of this, you, you know, start to get sober and you obviously have started to be very vulnerable and transparent about all of it, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't that way at first. You said you were keeping your treatment from from your mom and from others. So tell me about the process of kind of stepping into your truth and really kind of rediscovering who you actually are and want to be in the world. So when I stopped drinking, I thought that was it. I put down the alcohol. I'm good. Like mm-hmm. now I'm good. And I tell this story about when I was in treatment, I went in and uh, I'm a firstborn. I'm a, you know, that perfectionism mm-hmm. that doesn't always serve us well, but, and, um, and type A, like I just, and I was like, okay, I'm going to quit drinking. I was smoking cigarettes at the time. I'm going to quit smoking cigarettes. I'm going to quit diet Coke, the fake sugar. I'm going to quit real sugar. I'm going to be a vegan. I'm going to run a marathon. Like then, then I'm going to show, then I'll be perfect. Mm-hmm. You know? And then what they told me, they're like, just don't drink today. Like, okay, I can mm-hmm. do that. And so I didn't drink. And so the first year I did everything. I didn't drink. I went to 12 steps and I only surrounded myself with people that weren't drinking, I changed people's places and things because that's what was necessary for me to stay sober. Mm-hmm. And that was the first year. And the thing about getting sober is life doesn't get perfect. It doesn't change. We change. And so my ability to deal with life on life's terms looks better and mm-hmm. it's just better tools. And so that first year, I just kept showing up. I didn't pick up. I didn't put myself in situations. Where, and that was really hard because people would say, we're going to go to happy hour. And I'm like, gosh, I'm such a loser. And I had a girl tell me once, she's like, you're no fun anymore now that you don't drink. Mm-hmm. That feels like a stab in the chest when you're someone that just wants to be accepted and liked. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I fully found my voice until I was 15 years sober. Mm-hmm. And it's a process, right? And so my first year that happened, my, you know, my, at five years of sober is diagnosed with depression. And I went to start, started seeing a therapist and that was truly helpful. But I don't think I would have gotten to that point without the five years of work before that and mm-hmm. getting sober and staying sober and working a program of recovery and healing and helping other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and at five years out, you know, and at, t- at 10 years, my son was born. I was 10 years sober. Mm-hmm. He came 10 days after he was born was my 10th anniversary. And so I took him to a meeting and I picked up my 10 year tip and I spoke and looking back now, that seems like lifetimes ago, you know, because the person I was then isn't the, per- isn't the person I am now. And mm-hmm. at 15 years, which is 2022, I finalized a, a divorce, which was huge in me finding my voice. Mm. I'd let someone else's voice be louder in my head than my own for a really long time. And being confined during the pandemic will show you things about somebody else that you mm-hmm. don't maybe wouldn't otherwise see. And, mm-hmm. and, um, I started to feel more comfortable in my skin. It was when I, you know, during COVID we couldn't go to meetings. Everything was shut down. And as an addict, that was really hard because community for me is really important. And so mm-hmm. we were doing, I was doing zoom meetings, you know, every morning at 7am, sometimes at noon we would do because I was so isolated and alone. And I really dove into meditation then because mm-hmm. it was the only 
healthy escape I had. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to eat ice cream. I didn't want to self-harm because sometimes it it just feels so overwhelming. You don't know what to do. And I would meditate, Mm. put my son down for a nap. I'd meditate, put him down to bed. I would meditate. And it just, that really helped me find my voice initially. So at 15 years, I finalized divorce. I moved and I launched a business. I'd been staying home with my child. And so I was kind of catapulted into the world of, Mm. and then as I mentioned, my dad died at the end of 2022, right after I, a couple months after I celebrated 15 years. Mm. And at the end of 15, at the end of that moment was the biggest, the the biggest point in 15 years that I wanted to drink. The last of, you know, after four of the top five things, stressors in any person's life happened in one year. And had they happened at one year, my life would have looked different, but I had 15 years of healing and recovery and change in rituals and behaviors that led me to that point. And so when my dad died, I played the tape through as they say, you know, I was like, I really want to drink. I'm like, nope. Cause if Mm -hmm. I drink, I know what's happening. I know there's a really strong possibility. I don't come back. I don't get my recovery back. I get my son taken away. I lose all my friends and family. I end up wrecking my car. I mean, there were all of those things. And so, but I had healed to the point at that point that I knew that that wasn't a good option, Mm -hmm. but it comes, you know, when you talk about the things escaping or, you know, the healthy, the, what did you say? The kind of the healthier or the acceptable addictions, the societal acceptable addictions. I had changed the behaviors when I would have picked up a drink. You know, I pick up the phone and I have a handful of, and I joke and I call them my board of directors and it's five women. Mm-hmm. And I go to each one of them for different things because mm-hmm. one is really rational. One's really spiritual. One is funny as anything. <laughs> one is like, you know, a collaborator and like mm-hmm. in, you know, like, oh, we're going to, I don't know, do mm-hmm. this. Or mm-hmm. like, yeah, let's do this. And so, but they all bring these really wonderful um, things to my life. And so depending on what's going on, I can call or text one of them, go for a walk. Like the things that sound so trite and would have been boring to mm-hmm. me in, in while I was drinking are really peaceful because I don't want the drama that came along with the drinking. Yeah. I loved it. Right. And they say that and like, it's the, because I say like, I thrive in chaos. I'm so great. And like, I'm okay, let's do this. Let's do that. And it's like, that's actually a trauma response. That's not a good thing. So that's still there, but I don't want that to be there. I want to find the peace. Like I want to wake up with the contentment and joy. And after 15 years, um, when I started sharing openly, it had only happened by chance. You know, a friend of mine reached out and knew I was sober and said, do you want to share this? And, you know, a year earlier, I said I wouldn't have been ready because I was still feeling a little shameful. And I was also in a relationship where I was told it was shameful and embarrassing mm. and to never share mm. openly about it. And mm-hmm. I, when that ended, I was, it never felt good. Right. And so that was one of the most important things I've learned in this last year is to trust your intuition. Like it'll mm. never steer you wrong. Mm-hmm. And I never, I'd never done that before. I'd always pushed it down, whether it was through drinking or just lack of self-confidence. And so when I started sharing for the first time, it, was, it felt good. It was like a huge relief of my shoulders because I could live authentically and I could, you know, I was willing to look at my faults. But that came from from working a program too, saying like, hey, I did this and I'm not pleased. I'm not happy about it, you know, mm. but I'm sorry. Mm. And people can either choose to forgive you or they can say, kick rocks, Mm -hmm. but at least I've done my part. And that's the part, you know, that I loved about recovery and sobriety is that I just do, I'm only responsible for me. And if I can truly look at you or someone and say like, I'm really sorry for how I acted, or I would have handled that differently moving forward. And that's on me. And and then let go of the outcome, right? Mm-hmm. We can only do the best we can with what we have on any given day, like we said, the, you know, about mm-hmm. parenting. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true with life. Like if I show up every day and just give the best I can on that day, 100%, 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes I might not be at 100%. I might be at 50%. But if I can give 50%, it means I'm giving 100%, you know. And so yeah. if I can just show up and just be real and just be honest, because I think we're all walk through life with masks on sometimes yeah. because we want other people to think, we want people to think a certain way about us. But when we worry about what other people think about us, we kind of devalue what we think of ourselves or devalue the authentic voice inside of us. And so just by showing up and knowing that the people I attract or the people you attract or the people that anybody attracts to us or the people that are meant to be there mm-hmm. is so powerful. Mm-hmm. But that's 16 years in the making. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even then, like you said, I mean, you know, you were 15 years and had a, a moment where, you know, you were most vulnerable of slipping. So it's a constant journey. It's constant work. That play to the end, I think, is really a big one. Mm-hmm. Also, this perfectionism thing, you know, just to know, like, sometimes, even if it's emotions or mistakes, that you have to kind of, like, make room for all of that and allow it to be in that you might sometimes not be, you know, the best version of yourself, but that's okay, too. That's You're grace. human, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, I saw actually your brother was in town recently and spoke at an event. And, you know, he's also been very open about his mental health journey. And and I am kind of curious how you have potentially been able to come together with that struggle. Do you have that kind of relationship where the two of you are kind of in a more adult, mature place? What do you mean? Meaning? Well, not that you weren't before, but just when two people are openly sharing Mm -hmm. about the struggles that they've had, the the mental health struggles, Mm -hmm. you know, I would think that that might, you know, lend itself to um, know each other in a in a different way and maybe a deeper way. Well, I think as a family, we've always known, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it just it just only it just became public. Okay. Well, I wondered because you had, you know, said that, you know, you weren't sharing that part of you with your family. Oh, eventually I did. Oh, the yeah. dream. so once I got sober, they knew. I mean, so yeah. So once I got out of treatment, so they knew I was sober and they knew I was, I'd, I'd sought treatment and, you know, and, and this, and so we. You've kind of always had, known each other in that way. Right. And the yeah. joke is like my mom, right. So, cause my mom, you know, we tease because, um, you know, that generation, it's like, we don't talk about it, you yeah. know, like, and that's kind of, I, I joke, I'm like, that's where I learned it. You just don't talk about it and it will go away. Right. So you think like, you don't talk about things on the surface. You don't talk about things outside the family. You don't talk about things like you just kind of, you keep that inside and it'll eventually go away. Mm-hmm. So the joke is now I'm like, mom, now you have two kids speaking very openly about very private things. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that feel? And she's like, oh, you know, now mm-hmm. she's kind of, and that, but she's well, she grown. she sees it's okay. And now she, exactly. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's been, it's been healing for her as well. And, and she's, um, you know, been able to say like, okay, these are my kids. I think, yeah. I guess I did a good job. Like you did a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think just from a distance at this point, at least, you know, I have, and, and listening to him speak, you know, and I think a lot of people feel this way, you know, I have so much admiration for your journey and the struggle when you tell that story of being on the train and the text message, like 
to me, that's so sad and scary. And you're right, like by the grace of God, like you're here and like now doing what you're doing to me, that is like so much more and, and really like seeing him and I've heard him talk about it and you hear a lot of people talk about it, but like just standing up there in front of a large room of room full of people and being vulnerable I have like way more respect for all of that than the medals. I say the same thing to you. You know, and, and it sounds cliche and you could say it, but like really I, I deeply like, I mean, the medals, it's it's incredible, right? It's phenomenal, the success, but like I bet you it, it had to be harder for him to come clean with his emotions and his struggle in some way. Well, I'd rather celebrate people for who they are, not what they do, right? Yeah. Meaning like who All you are, them, your who core, they really are. who you are, like your vulnerability, your authenticity, owning your stuff. Yeah. That's more admirable in my eyes than what you do yeah. by winning or by achieving or by succeeding, right? Because... That's that's beautiful. That's, that's like sharing your truth with other people and human showing beings in connection. Like really, that's deep, real stuff. That's connection, exactly. Yeah. And and being able to say, like, we're all human. I don't need to pretend to be somebody I'm not. Like, uh, exactly. I made a lot of mistakes. And like, we had this conversation on the, in the car ride over here. Like, if someone says, like, it calls, I would never lie about. It. I'd be like, you know what? I'm human. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. I did it. Yeah. And right. and that's okay because yeah. you know what? You're not perfect either. And neither is that person. And that person over there, yeah. I'm just willing to talk about the that I'm not perfect and that that's okay too. And hopefully somebody else will say, that gives me the strength to own my stuff. It does. It's That's the beauty of it is, you know, in what might, I actually gave a speech pre-COVID here uh, to a large group where I shared my journey. Mm-hmm. And um, a, an older guy in the real estate community here in town said something to me. He's, 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 um, I don't want to say too much, but um, he, he, he said, you know, something like, you know, you're like um, weak like that or vulnerable like that. He, he, he actually didn't, it was a sort of a cultural thing. He didn't really mean like you're weak, but those are the words that came out and I was like, no, no, I don't think you understand. That's strength. That's that's what it, that's what strength actually looks like. And the response that you get when you show that side, mm-hmm. because everybody has it and they're and they're hiding it. Mm-hmm. You right? Like it's so powerful actually to be able to just be in truth and to admit that you're imperfect and that you're flawed and that you fuck up sometimes. Right? Like. Yeah. That people need to know that. That's what brings everybody up, actually. And that's the hard part, right? First is acknowledging it in ourselves. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not perfect. And I remember when I got someone said, What's your definition of perfect? Write it. And so I wrote it. You know, well, when this happens, I'm perfect. She goes, Great. Will you be happy when you achieve this? Mm-hmm. No, I'll write something else. And she's like, Lose the word perfection. It's just a goal. You know, it just mm-hmm. becomes, but it's this idea of like, I'm perfect the way I am in this moment. Mm-hmm. And I can try, you know, if I want to be a faster runner or I mm-hmm. want to be a better writer or mm-hmm. whatever it is, like that's just about betterment of self. It's not about finding perfection. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me, just as we start to wrap up, Tell me about like today, what, what does your life look like today? What are you working on? What are you passionate about? What do you want to share? Mm, I, um, gosh, okay. So today, (laughs) um, you know, when I was in, say it's in transition, I'd spent 15 years 
in sobriety. And then I was going through this other, you know, another life transition. I worked with this really beautiful woman and she was a coach and she was the one that helped me find my voice. Cause like you shared earlier about your kids, you want, I just want someone to tell me what to, mm-hmm. just tell me what to do. Just mm-hmm. tell me what to do and I'll do it. And what she did was help me figure out what I wanted to do, what my voice was telling me. And it was the greatest experience and one of the most beautiful gifts I've ever seen is having somebody help me find my voice. Mm-hmm. And so in the last year, I did the same thing. I went through a program and got certified so I can help other mm. women do the same. Mm. And so, you know, I work as a publicist. That's my, I say my day job. Mm-hmm. Um, but my passion is to help other women because I think one woman getting sober, finding her voice, living her truth, finding her purpose, being authentic is such a ripple effect into the world with her kids, with her business, with her partner, with all of those things. And so... I've started working with women in that capacity of helping them find their voice Mm. and live in their truth, whatever that looks like. So women that are going through transitions, sobriety, um, divorce, midlife crisis, their kids go away to college. It's like, now what? Like, what do I do now? Yeah, totally. Um, And so it's just, it's in that capacity and, and speaking a lot on addiction recovery. In order to change policy, we have to change perception. In order to change perception, we have to decrease the shame and stigma around the word addiction, substance use disorder, um, especially women. Mm. I say that there's a double standard, I think, in men and women when it comes to women. Men can go out and have a really great time and you can laugh about it with your friends and women do it. And it's like, how dare you? Shame on you. Get your stuff together. Mm. And so I wanted to show that, you know, this is not something to be shameful or embarrassed about. And even if you never share your story of recovery, if women don't want to speak openly on their sobriety or, you know, say like, I'm an addict, I just want them to feel like they have an advocate or somebody in their corner that understands, even if they're, you know, quote, just a wine drinker. Mm-hmm. And so I've done that. And and then, and just, just holding space for people that need someone to, mm. to just listen. Yeah. Because I think at the end of the day, and I've said like empathy, love and kindness are abundant. And I think so many people feel like if they give it freely, it's going to run out and it's not, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I want, yeah. Yeah. Help people feel seen. Yeah. That's great. I wonder just as we wrap up, if you could just like say a few words as to like what your life is like now that that's what you're doing. How does that feel to just be landing in a place that you have done enough work to be able to hold space for other people. Just maybe kind of talk just a little bit about like what that's like for you. When I got sober, I thought it was the greatest that life, you know, I thought that was incredible because it was such a change. Now there are moments in my day where I will like now just cry because I've never felt more confident I have self-love. I have people in my life that I'm open and vulnerable with that see me for who I am. And that feels really good too. Um, I feel like I've, I don't want to say arrived, you know, but I feel like life is better than I could have imagined it ever would be because I'm at a place where I feel really grounded in who I am, but it all starts with me, right? Mm-hmm. And it all, like everything starts with me without me, the cliche of filling up my own cup, I can't give it to anybody else. And so every day, most days, <laughs> most days I make sure my cup is full so I can give it to others and, and love others. But um, there are moments when I can't believe that this is that this is my life. And that's hard to always put into words because I felt so 
alone and sad and distraught and fearful every day. And not to say those things don't come up, but they're so few and far between from what it was. And it's such a great and beautiful life. I can't put it into words yeah. some days, but yeah. Yeah, no, I actually think it's it's almost better to not be able to put it into words. I mean, this might not translate to the audience, but I'm you know, sitting here with you and I see the, I see the feeling that's around this way that you are. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me, it's actually the trophy you were really always looking for. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the big trophy that you wanted as a little kid, right? Yeah. Like you win, you win. And it's not what you were told it would look like, no. right? But you got there, you know, and, you, you got yeah. there and now you get to win. And it's really about healing and service and love and kindness and empathy and peace and joy and all those things that you shared. And I think it's awesome. It's great to see you Thank winning, you. you know? And I also, one more thing about that, like at 45, you know, I'm 45 and I was like, last year, I'm like, I'm starting over. Yeah. My I'd like this, this feels like the end of my, like everything and my dad and this, my, like nothing looks the way I thought it would. Like, this is not, Yeah. but on the flip side is it's better than that. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, it is the, my friends say Hillary 2.0, it's the new chapter and it is more beautiful. You're right. I love that analogy of the trophy, the winning. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, you know, and, and I'll just say like, I talk about this with a friend of mine who's also gone through a lot and is in recovery and 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 we both love to go to dead shows, Grateful Dead shows. And, yeah. right? and he's like, you know, sometimes, <laughs> man, they're just not as fun when you're sober. And I'm like, I know, but it's like you play it through to the end. Like, like remember like all the other shit that came and like and now like I love being sober at shows. Like it just looks different. It, Cause it, it but it's it's sense of like peace and just it's a different kind of high you get being sober. It's a different kind of high you get by being healthy. Mm -hmm. It's not like the same high high, but the low lows aren't anywhere near. And that trade-off is like perfect. And so it is like a recalibration of like what it feels like to feel healthy. It's better. I think. <laughs> I do too. It's like yeah. what we think using our head, it's supposed to feel like, but what it actually feels like using our heart, you know, it's yeah. like a different, we think it's going to be a certain way or look a certain way or feel a certain way, but yeah, it's the being in that moment. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you um, for taking the time and for sharing your story here and for the work that you're doing. It's awesome. I think it's especially important that women have a woman to go on the journey of life with. Um, I think that I know in my own experience and my wife's experience, having a relatable voice mm. is incredibly supportive and helpful. And you're right. I mean, I think women need other women to help them. And so it's amazing what you're doing. And I and I thank you for it. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.